Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Melina Lee Williams Haas. I deeply appreciate you listening and taking the time to hang out with me. I will be addressing issues of life, the universe, and everything that are often bogged down and mired in shame and grief, and talk about how they can be repackaged to be useful and gorgeous and fucking awesome for you. So, sit back and relax, or, you know what? Sit up and freak out. However, you prefer to listen. Let's go. Last winter, I had the delightful opportunity to spend some time in Berlin. And the main reason I was there was because Spassmeister Haas had a piece that was premiering and we were going to be there for that. However, because a friend of mine, Cameron Moore, who is an amazing writer and performer, lives there now. And because we have been trying for years to figure out how to get a show together or to work together or to do something for, together, for God's sake since she's also a storyteller. We finally came up with the idea to do something called a truth or dare night. And so we invited members of the public to write down questions for us, and we could either answer a truth or take a dare. And fortunately, there were so many wonderful questions, but unfortunately, there was not an unlimited amount of time. And so at the end of the evening, I asked Cameron, hey, can I can I grab a bunch of these unanswered questions? And just bring them home with me. And so she, we split them up actually, because she was like, yeah, I think that's a great idea. I want to take some too and then see if we could answer any of them. So what I'm going to do for this episode is do the truths of the truth or dare. Cause while I could, you know, for example, twerk for you, I don't think it would be as satisfying an experience. Um, to hear me describe me twerking, it actually would probably be better than the real thing. Cause I'm not much of a twerker. Yes, I know everyone can twerk. And yes, I have received confirmation that despite how it feels to me, my butt actually is wiggling, although it feels like it's just sort of sadly jiggling in small, very modest circles, unlike the amazing clapping that some human beings can achieve with their buttocks. I, I am, I am not that blessed, mostly just because I have one of those weird trapezoid butts. Anyway, I did not get the good butt genes in my family. What can you say? At least I have the boobs, right? So I'm going to pick three of these questions and I'm going to answer them. Let's see what we got here. This is the question. Melina, that's me. What are your thoughts about being submissive as a black woman to a white person? What do you need to feel safe? An excellent question. And I will say, first of all, my thoughts are that Submission, dominance and submission, submission and dominance, all of these things are already really very complicated relationship styles, right? I think most people who are raised in Western societies generally are taught that women should be able to choose their own destiny, choose their own lives, and that being submissive to men is not the way you want to go. Now, there certainly are social groups for whom female submission is something that is assumed 
And this is not what I'm talking about either. What I'm talking about is the idea that uh, equality across the spectrum for humankind is generally where most societies want to go. Definitely in, in a lot of societies, there are places where women are assumed to be submissive. So I'm not talking about that because in a society that's structured that way, a cisgender woman being submissive is not impressive, right? There's no issue with that. Um, and I will say that being a, a woman in America, we're, let's take race out of the equation for now. Any person, cisgender woman, culturized, culturized, my God, I'm just going to start making up words now, culturized, acculturated to the typical traditional sort of American, you know, woman doing her own thing kind of role. Or anyone who falls on the side of feminism where they feel like, okay, you know what? Yeah, women should be able to do what the fuck they want and not have that be dictated by social mores. Where that bites you in the ass is then when you turn around and you say, okay, you know what? Bet. What I want actually is to be submissive because suddenly your free will and your choice becomes a problem because it's aligned with what most people consider to be a rather oppressive, hierarchical, patriarchal society. Add to that the layer of, okay, now you are an African-American, you are a Black American, you are someone who is probably the descendant of folks who were chattel slaves. And now you're adding a complexity that just can become very ugly and veer into the realm of a place where people are saying, well, you know what? You don't really have the right to do what you're doing and actually what you're doing as a Black woman being submissive. The optics are just horrifying already. And then you add to that that you're submitting to a white man, my God. And I had years, the first few years after I first started having fantasies about being submissive, and as those fantasies were initially aroused by a guy who is just pretty fucking white, that reality was what I was looking at. And what's very true about sex for me is that it's first and foremost going to be a head trip, right? Arousal starts in the brain, generally. You can get turned on by porn. You can get turned on by someone touching you. But the reality is all of those things pass through your brain first. Sensation has to go through your brain before you can make any sense of it, right? Erotica turns you on because your brain is processing it, making a bunch of conclusions about how your body's going to now feel and what's going to happen next. So for me, the thought experiment of, all right, I'm submissive. All right, I'm aroused by these types of activities. Okay, well, this person is white and, and, to be honest, I, there's no way to escape what I'm looking at here, which is an echo and a resonance of some very, very ugly realities that live still in the DNA that I carry in my body. How do I deal with that? What do I need to feel safe? Well, the first thing I need to feel safe is for me to give myself permission to be safe. Nobody else can approach me and tell me I'm safe and I'm okay if I don't feel that. And that safety has to start with me feeling pretty fucking good about who I am. Because if at any point I start to doubt that, I start to think that I'm fucked up, that I'm a mess, 
that I'm not worthy of love and affection or that my particular desires are so fucked up that I should just seek therapy and not affection in this particularly brutal style. Then I've just set myself up to be engaged in a relationship that can become abusive instantly just because I'm abusing myself. It's really easy to forget that a lot of the things that we're doing in BDSM and kink are pretend. A lot of this shit is make-believe. Slavery is not legal in the United States. I do not actually belong in any legal or binding sense to my husband. And if I walked out of this door right now and said, I'm free, people would be like, uh, great, whatever the fuck, uh, do you, baby? Because nothing has happened. Now, you rewind a couple hundred years, and I did not have that freedom, and I did not have that choice. And choice and agency are the things that make what I do 180 degrees away from what was put upon my ancestors. They did not have any choice. And so the first thing I need to feel safe in a relationship, in a DS relationship, A, B, as a black woman, C, with a white man, is I need to trust my own intentions. I need to trust myself. I need to feel that I am keeping myself safe and that I have the capacity to maintain that safety, regardless of what the relationship might throw at me. Because the reality is someone can come into a relationship with the best and cleanest and most pristine intentions, and those things can be twisted over time because people change. Situations change. The more you get to know someone, the more complicated they can become sometimes. What I thought I knew about myself, what I thought I knew about my beloved husband and owner nine years ago when we first met, was a shadow of a scratch to the surface of the people we would become and the depth of the relationship we would form. And I had to trust that I was able to do that. And I had to trust not that he was perfect, not that he had no racist bones in his body, because for God's sake, the dude was raised by Nazis as a Nazi. There are plenty of racist bones. And he knows that. And we work on those things. And this is the reality. If you are a Caucasian person raised in a Western society, you have racism on you, in you, all around you. You've been soaking in it, Marge, okay? The people I trust, the people that put me at ease are the people who say, I know I have my shit. I'm working on it. And when slash if you call me out or you call me in, I'm prepared to sit down, shut the fuck up and hear what you have to say and then do what I need to do to rectify. Those are the people with whom I can work. Those are the people that help me feel safer. Not someone who assures me that they're not racist. Not someone who eagerly jumps up and says, oh, yes, of course, I absolutely know how to handle being in relationship with a black woman. You fucking don't. I don't even know how to do it. And I am a black woman. Oh, my God. How could you possibly have a clue? <laughs> so, yeah, the reality is that not all people who are engaged in interracial relationships live in the headspace of being in an interracial relationship 24 hours a day, seven days a week. At home, a lot of the times, we're just fucking people. 
And sometimes we feel like the same person. And sometimes we feel like incredibly wildly diverse and different people. And how the hell do we even stay in the same apartment for day after day after day? And the reality is that while our racial backgrounds and history and our ethnics, our ethnicities and the divergence between these can cause conflict and friction, what they really do for us is give us a place to come together and explore. He will never know what it's like to be me and I will never know what it's like to be him. But God damn, isn't it amazing for us to spend our lives together, figuring out how it is for us to be ourselves together. And so for now, what I would say, what I need to feel safe is Georg Friedrich Haas. Even when, even when we're in the midst of our most difficult moments, this is the first time I have ever felt in my life that as hard as it may get, walking away is not something that I can't do, something that I wouldn't ever want to do. Because I'm in this for the fucking long haul. And there's something that feels so refreshing and liberating to me to say, yeah, that is my human. I am his human. And even if we have to pull each other into small pieces to figure our shit out, we'll be there for each other to put those pieces back together again. That, that is my safety net. That was a good one. All right, next question. Here we go. Here's a good one. What was your most hilarious fuck up as a submissive? Okay, this is good. <laughs> so, um, well, it wasn't hilarious to my own. Well, okay. Anyway, so back in the day when I was first uh, in the scene out exploring King of BDSM, I w- was newly in the Bay Area. So this is around 1996. And the first dominant I met actually at my first, I think it was, did I meet him first at my first play party? Yes. And it wasn't even a play party. It was a non-play centric kink event. It was a, a kinky truth or dare, actually. So that ties right back into the truth or dare theme for this. And the story of how we met is a good one, but I'm not going to go into that right now because I'm talking about the most hilarious fuck up as a submissive. So I met this guy and I was very new to the scene. And I wouldn't say I got swept off my feet. I swept myself off my feet right into this guy's service because I'd gotten word that he was one of these folks who was very old school. And very much into a very uh, hardcore, quote unquote, traditional leather household. And for those who aren't initiated, you need to understand that the subculture of kink and leather has people who do it sort of for fun on weekends, very light and easy. And then there's some people for whom it is the focus and center of their social lives, of their sexual lives, of their personal lives. All of these things are in the middle of it. And those folks will form something that are known as leather families. So they will have associations, affiliations with other people, um, generally not biologically related to them, but whom they take on as family. And when you are someone who's an outcast or a reject or considered to be a pervert or a weirdo, sometimes you can lose that structure. And it can feel really very fucking reassuring to have folks who look to you as family and count you as someone that they love and care for and protect. And so it was really very comforting to me to come into the BDSM community and find this sort of subculture within the subculture. And of course, type A, gifted kid, you think I'm going to fuck around to be a normal submissive? No! I have to go for the most hard-ass fuckery that's out there. Yeah? 
So despite the fact that I am at heart monoamorous, as in I only love one person at once, I am not polyamorous. I am polyplayful. So for example, I can be engaged in a loving relationship with someone and then have another friend who's like, hey, I got some rope. Can I tie you up and give you a few spangs to the butt? And I would be happy to do that because that is, to me, fun engagement. It does not necessarily engage me romantically because the reality is that romantically, I really only have room and time for one person. So it's completely cool for me to be involved with poly people as long as my needs are getting met. And in my first poly relationship, well, I will call this my second poly relationship because I did have a relationship that involved multiple people when I was in high school because I'm an advanced level kid. So my second one, right? What was very interesting about this was that the dominant in question, he had multiple submissives and these submissives were people who were in service to him. And by in service, what that meant was that you were sort of at his beck and call to do what he wanted. Now, these things could be negotiated. And in my case, what we had negotiated was the type of relationship that might eventually lead to a master-slave dynamic. But he had very stringent rules, which I find to be actually very helpful when it came to getting to know someone. And there would be a experimental period. There would be what was called maybe a temporary collaring or a collar of consideration, which would mean that you would be sort of, uh, it's like an engagement. Let's call it, let's compare it to that. Or the tradition of hand fasting where people would be together for a year and a day and then see how things go. Something I highly recommend. I think a time of learning and growing together is very important, especially if you're going to be committing to a relationship as complicated as a master-slave relationship, for God's sake. So much of what was the center of this particular household was service. And so there were lots of things I needed to learn to do in order to serve successfully in this house. I had to learn how to serve high tea because there was a attachment to formal English tea service. And so we had to learn how to serve low tea, high tea, cream teas. I had a stack of books on how to set tables. Um, I had to learn the proper temperatures for heating water and how to properly set down a cup so that one did not make any noise and disturb the conversation. And at first, these challenges seemed just super delightful. I had to learn how to cook to the exacting preferences of the dominant I was serving. I had to do a bunch of housework and yard work and personal work and all the things that were designed to make his life easier and better. And boy, I thought that was really great at first. And then I started to realize, you know what? I actually don't love housework. I, in fact, fucking hate it. But then, of course, you learn rather quickly that as a submissive, you are to enjoy whatever service is given to you because the point is not what you want to do. The point is you subjecting your will to the greater good of the needs wants, and desires of your dominant or owner. And in theory, that just sounded lovely as hell. Until I realized that because of the fact that there were so many things that I did not love doing, that apparently my attitude towards doing those things was not acceptable. 
And here's my fucking point. Am I doing it? Did it get done? Then leave me the fuck alone, sir. (laughs) Stick the sir on the end to make sure you're remaining respectful. But no, of course, your attitude also must be positive. Otherwise, you're bringing negative energy into your work. Okay, fine. So no eye rolling, no foot dragging, no loud sighs. And while that's fine in theory, what you've now done is added a layer of psychological adjustment that needs to happen. So not only do I need to do this thing I don't want to do, I have to smile and nod with positivity because, of course, it is a privilege for me to be able to have a place to serve, right? Yeah. So now I'm already one step removed from my truth. Because my truth is, I don't want to iron your shirts. I suck at ironing. I hate ironing. But because it was something I did not enjoy, and because my attitude was poor, apparently I had to be given the difficult tasks in order to overcome. Like some sort of monk in the forest, like standing in a in a bucket of water, trying to fucking grab with, I don't know. I'm thinking of one of those like old school Chinese action movies where the monk is like hanging from his knees by a pole and then like has a cup of water that he's having to lift from above his head on the ground and do a sit up and then dump it into this other bucket of water and I don't know, whatever the fuck. Some kind of shit. Basically, it was just perpetually like, what can we give Melina to do to challenge her so that she can have a better attitude in service? One of these tasks that I was given to do was yard work. Bitches, I grew up in Manhattan. Okay. The closest I got to yard work was if we were in my grandma's house in Brooklyn in the backyard trying to dig up and make some mud pies, which I did once. And I was like, mud smells bad. I don't like mud. It's gritty and weird. And then I started thinking about what mud was. I was like, there's dead ancient creatures in there. I'm not fucking with this. This is the worst. And I was like, I'm done. I'm done with mud. My experiences of yard work were mud pies. And oh, yeah, my school took us to uh, Central Park. We were volunteering for the Central Park Conservancy because back in the 80s, there was some sort of horrible infestation, invasion, invasion of uh, Japanese knotweeds that were strangling rhododendron plants in Central Park. And so they had us out there like hacking them up to try to save the rhododendron bushes. Motherfucker, I did not give one shit about a rhododendron bush. And I sure as hell did not want to be wading into the shrubbery in Central Park. That was for the rats and the weirdos. Okay. Not me, but I did it. And I was like, I hope you're happy. Goddamn rhododendron. So I was not coming into this with a positive ass attitude towards yard work. And yet, that's what I was assigned to do weekend after weekend. I'd show up trying to be positive, trying to do my little thing. And it was like, okay, Mo, here are your chores for the weekend. Oh, look, I have to iron these 10 shirts and then weed the front yard. And then what is this? Pull, clean the trellis, clean the trellis. Well, my first owner lived in a huge and very old house in Oakland. And on the side yard, there was a very lovely little seating area that was under this trellis. And one of the things I had to do was to pull up all the weeds around all the flagstones in the backyard and then clear off the trellis. This is what was on the list of things for me to do. 
So I started with the flagstones, pulling up the weeds, and then I got to this one weed that was so dense that it wound up flipping over the flagstone, and then I was attacked savagely by a slug. Traumatic. I'm not living my best life at this point, y'all. Facts, facts. But I'm, you know, take a deep breath, run to the kitchen, grab a thing of salt, and fucking salt the hell out of that slug, because fuck you, slug, I'm not going to have you flipping onto my leg unacceptable. But I did it. I cleared off the fucking weeds from the fucking flagstones and then turned to this trellis. This trellis was entirely enmeshed in these dead sticks. And I'm looking at it like, I don't even know how I'm going to get half of these off of here. They were really wound in there really tight, but I was fucking determined. So I went back to the little shed. I grabbed some Hedge trimmers, you know, those little like big pokety things with the pointy nose. And I just grabbed those and a couple of pairs of shears and some little like hand rake things to like yank off as many of the twiggly dead branches as I could and cleaned off. It took me a couple of hours to get everything off of this trellis. And then I swept all these little branches and all the weeds and the slug goo into a fucking bag, put it on the side and then washed my hands off and then went back inside the house. And let, let him know, sir, I've cleaned up. Please come at your leisure when you are prepared to check my work. Thank you. Got myself a nice glass of water. Sat down on the back steps. And then in a couple of minutes, he came outside. And I could see him looking up the flagstones. They were all clear. He nodded. And then his gaze looked up and hit the trellis and he froze. And I suddenly got a really bad feeling in my stomach because he just went completely blank. Like, just like no color in his face at all. Just eyes popping out of his head. But he didn't say anything. And I'm frozen because, like, you could just feel how the energy had shifted into some really bad place. And I'm like, what the hell, bro? So I slowly put down my glass of water and I just sat. I didn't say shit. And like a good two or three minutes went by and you sit there staring at your partner for two or three minutes as they're gazing off into the distance beyond you, not saying anything. And then he took a deep breath and said, what happened to the trellis? And I said, well, sir, uh, According to the note, you said to clean it off. And so I did. Is there something wrong? Now, here's the thing. Obviously, something was fucking wrong, but I didn't know what the hell else to say, y'all. And so all he said was, I just need a minute. And then he said, I'm not angry at you. I have to take responsibility for this. I did not make myself clear. And he turned around and walked back in the house. And I sat the fuck back down and waited <laughs> on that back staircase because I was like, I don't know what just happened. But uh, clearly something really terrible. So about 10 minutes later, he came back out and he looked a little bit more relaxed. But he said, hi, he said, I need to tell you, he said, and again, this is not your fault. There's there's really no way you could have known. But what you just cut off and cut down was about 80 years of growth 
from this grapevine and he pointed to this stump because, you know, I had trimmed off all the branches. But apparently this ancient rootstock had been growing since, I don't know, I guess the house was built under this huge trellis. And I didn't know was that I guess when grapes are not blossoming, they look like they're dead. (laughs) And I was like, well, y'all need to give some signs of life. So I sat there and I held my head down and I said, you know, sir, I, I apologize. And he said, you, this is not your fault. This is not your fault. There's no way you could have known. I'm like, yeah, I mean, perhaps someone with more experienced gardening would make a better gardener for you, sir. And this is the thing. As a dominant, yes, you have the ability to bend and twist a submissive to your will. But why not just get the submissive that fits your will? He had me ironing, y'all, when he had another sub in his service who used to work at a dry cleaner for whom ironing was a calming and soothing meditative practice that she liked. But no, God forbid he should have her do the thing that was best for her. It always had to be another opportunity for growth. After so many incidences of me feeling like a failure, because I could not become the slave that he wanted me to be, I finally fucking clocked to the fact that, you know what, I need to be the best Molina I can fucking be, and then find the owner who sees me and goes, wow. She's amazing. I need to step up my game to have her in my service. And it took me a while. And I finally found that guy. And then I wound up letting him own me. Because I feel safe. Because I am not only permitted to be who I am, but who I am is perfect in this. That's the way it needs to be, y'all. That's healthy. That's gorgeous. That's beautiful. And that's what I wish for anyone who is seeking a DS relationship is to find the person who sees you and goes, wow. Hey, I just want to let you know we have a Patreon account. If you're digging the podcast and you'd like to toss a few ducats our way, it would really help with production value, you know, because I need to value my productions. Anyway, I want to give shout outs to my current Patreon awesome folks, Anna B, Christopher B, Amy W, James P, Marshall F, Hadar CW, Scott J, Marty W, Meg B, JP, Eric MJ, Killer B, Sarah L, Esther, The Adipositivity Project, Kathleen M, Andrea, DKG, Stephanie S, and an extra special shout out to my most majestic, <laughs> I tear awesome mama son, Liz Scott. Thanks, everyone, and please enjoy. Or don't, don't fucking enjoy. Do what the fuck you want. I hate people say that. I always like, hey, enjoy. And then I'm like, you know what? You know what? Maybe you don't want to enjoy. Be as cranky as you want. But if you're feeling generous, head on over to Patreon. And hey, look, you know what? It's Black History Month. So frankly, 
y'all should be tossing over some money my way anyway. Consider it reparations, bitches. <laughs> You've been listening to All That and Mo. Thanks so much for spending your precious, precious time with me today. My podcast is produced by Cody Crabb. Theme music by Georg Friedrich Haas, as performed by Marcus Weiss. And I look forward to spending time with you again really soon. Mm-hmm.